today we are very happy to welcome Rosalind LaPierre, um, uh, who is, has come to us from Montana, um, where she is uh, a, an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Tribe of Montana, as well as an assistant professor in environmental history at the University of Montana. Um, Roslyn um, has most recently come to us just the last 48 hours from, where was the meeting? Minneapolis. The, from Minneapolis, where she was at the um, Association of Western History, where her fir first book received the Robert Athern Award, um, which is awarded every two years for the best book on the American West in the 20th century. And so her new book, City Indian, Native American Activism in Chicago, 1893 to 1934, co-authored with her husband, David Beck, um, uh, was awarded the Apron Award. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and Rosalind's next book, um, I'm, uh, <coughs> The Pagan View of the Natural World, 1880 to 1920, has been accepted for publication at the University of Nebraska Press, and we look forward to that. Um, that's her day job, <laughs> um, I suppose. That's my guess. Um, Rosalind is also the founder of Sokio Heritage, an organization of Native women interested in preserving histories, language, and traditional knowledge of Native peoples of the Northern Great Plains. Um, and um, it was really great hearing you re-emerge into this world at the end of the summer after being offline on the res um, in a very different mindset for the summer, as you do every year, is that right? Yeah. So thank you for coming here to this mindset and writing these books um, uh, to share with us the research project that you're working on this year. Um, Plants that purify the natural and supernatural history of smudging. Rosalind. Well, thank you everyone for coming today at noontime. And um, I know it's nice and cool outside. I was shocked, pleasantly surprised at how cool it was this morning when I left. Um, so uh, I want to begin by um, letting folks know um, by introduction that being in the academy is a second career for me. <laughs> <laughs> I spent 20 plus years working um, for various national and, and local native not-for-profits, primarily working to um, revitalize um, traditional knowledge and revitalize um, native languages. And I still continue to do that with my own um, organization. Um, but I moved on to um, working um, in the academy because of cultural revitalization. So one of the projects I had worked on, or several projects I had worked on with um, different museums um, in the United States and Canada. So I worked with the American Museum of Natural History, I worked with the National Museum of Natural History, where um, over the years I, I um, was able to acquire um, associate um, uh, research status. But those places were interested also in um, taking a look at all the materials that they had in their collections and trying to figure out how they can make them relevant to communities today. And so they worked with myself and other people um, on the Blackfeet Reservation and several other Native communities to try and figure out how to um, 
take that sort of information that's been sitting there for 100 years and bring it back um, to life. It was from projects like that where I was um, working again with museums and community that I decided um, I would return to school and uh, get a PhD in environmental history. Um, so I currently work at the University of Montana in the Environmental Studies Department as their lone environmental historian. So many of the sort of academic questions that I ask about what you're gonna, what I'm gonna share with you today center on, on that particular discipline. But I come from a lot of different backgrounds and different knowledge bases. Um, but being in the academy is something um, to, a, to a certain extent is, is, especially mainstream academy, is very new to me because I have always worked in and within a tribal community, so. I'm gonna restart my clock. There's a little clock here that you get to watch. So it ticks down. <laughs> so today I'm just gonna address a few things. One is just really talking about my project that I'm doing here um, at the Women's Studies and Religion Program and talking about one particular ceremony that the Blackfeet um, have done perhaps for the last 5,000 years. We're not sure. I'll end on that note. But that, but that um, women are at the center of this one particular ceremony that I um, will be writing about and will probably be one of the chapters um, in my work. But I wanted to start by telling you about a few of the things that I actually do um, in my multiple hats that I wear. So this is, a, this is a picture of an elder's home on the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation, which is in central Montana. And Fort Belknap is the home primarily to the Grovan tribe, but also to the Assiniboine, who are not, um, not technically from that area, but the, the Grovan invited them to come and, and live on their land with them. This is an area that, um, even though it's the home of this uh, particular elder, I'll show you a picture of him in a moment, um, this is an area that is, uh, is suffering from uh, massive pollution. Uh, just up the mountain from here is a gold mine where they have done cyanide leach gold mining, um, the, uh, and they've polluted the water permanently. Um, this, this particular community here has to, will be on bottled water for forever. Um, but the gentleman who lived here, he started an uh, organization called Red Thunder, and Red Thunder was an indigenous um, environmental justice organization, and um, he was able, along with a few other people, he was able to stop cyanide leach gold mining in the state of Montana, made it illegal. Um, it is principally not used in the state of, I mean, in the United States anymore because of their activism. Um, unfortunately, it continues to be used in places like Ecuador and China and other, other places around the world um, who suffer the same um, issues. Um, so anyway, this summer we did a project where we returned to um, the Fort Belknap Reservation and um, we interviewed all of the um, sort of remaining elders um, that were part of Red Thunder. And we were working on an oral history project to um, try and record their story of um, working on this one really successful um, uh, effort to uh, address environmental degradation and environmental pollution. But as I had just mentioned earlier, it's, um, you know, the, the, the bottom line is um, the water is polluted, um, but they were able to stop um, the method of pollution. So anyway, this was a group of folks from primarily the University of Michigan and um, a couple of uh, PhD students and um, all of the elders that were um, still working or st that we got together um, this summer. So that's one of the kind of projects that I work on that 
has nothing really to do with religion or anything else. It's more about environmental studies type stuff. Um, the next photo I'm going to show you is this is a group of students that this last year I had a class with. I teach a class at the University of Montana on native plant stewardship and ethnobotany. And our, the University of Montana has 750 acres of land. 650 acres are natural area. So we teach our students about the native plants, um, how to become be good stewards. And also, because most of them don't know, um, you know one plant from another, kind of the basics of botany and ethnobotany. So anyway, um, they spend actually almost the entire semester on this mountain um, that they're sitting on right now, uh, um, being stewards of that area. One of the other things I do is in the summertime, I um, give a lot of talks, primarily on the Blackfeet Reservation, but in tribal communities around Montana, um, where I uh, talk about um, ethnobotany. There is uh, a lot of people who are still very interested in learning about plants. Uh, unfortunately, because of the last 100 years of um, colonization and the impact of colonization in tribal communities, this is something that has really been kind of a lost art. Not completely lost, but a lost art. So because um, I have been trained as an ethnobotanist, it's something that I think it's um, important for me to then share with other people in the community about um, different types of plants. Um, the girl in the picture is uh, my niece. Her name is Danny Antelope, and she is interested in learning about plants. So this summer, she sort of became my uh, uh, my uh, assistant, <laughs> and uh, we gave several um, talks together. And we went out, and she's she's beginning to learn about plants. This is a very long process. I I took about 20 years learning about um, ethnobotany from my grandmother and my oldest aunt. So it's a big commitment to say. Um, you know, you want to um, go out and do this. Um, okay, so that's sort of what I do. Thought I'd introduce myself by way of. Okay, so this is a picture of, not a, not a correct picture, but a picture of North America. And um, I thought I'd start there, although where's Tracy? I was joking with Tracy, I was gonna start with a picture of the world. Um, <laughs> focusing on, so the area that I'm going to be talking about um, and the group that I'm gonna be talking about is from this area in what is almost in the geographic center of North America. The geographic center of North America is in North Dakota, for those of you who don't know. And um, uh, this particular area is uh, what is known as the Northern Great Plains. And the Northern Great Plains is a um, considered sort of an eco-region, although there's ma many ecosystems within that um, eco-region. And there are distinct cultural groups that live within that area. Not surprisingly, um, if you were to look at a map of North America and were to look at all of the indigenous groups um, that lived in North America before, um, before Europeans came, um, most native groups lived within distinct um, eco-regions. Uh, it was pretty rare that people, um, their, their particular societies or cultures crossed over a lot of different eco-regions. People usually lived in an arid area or they lived in a wetlands. Um, they lived in very distinct um, places. So you can almost draw lines. Um. So this particular uh, map shows you um, what is, again, um, scientifically described as the Northern Great Plains, which is the red, what's drawn out in red here. And so this covers what is today um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Montana, the Dakotas, part of Manitoba. And really what this is, is if you take a look at it, it's really the watershed that goes into the Missouri River. So if you look in the middle, you can see the Missouri River cutting through Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. 
And for those of you who are um, on social media or watching the news lately, um, as you know, there is a, a protest going on right now on the Missouri River, um, pretty much where the North Dakota and South Dakota border meet. Uh, that's where the uh, Standing Rock uh, tribe is, um, is protesting against the Dakota Access uh, Pipeline. So the circle that I have on there is the area where the Blackfeet live. So today I'm going to be talking primarily about um, Blackfeet religion and um, Blackfeet uh, traditional knowledge. And so that is the area where they historically lived and still continue to live today, except in a much, much smaller landscape. Um, so pretty much anything north of the Yellowstone River, um, which is kind of on the bottom of my circle there, all the way to the North Saskatchewan River, which is the river up on top, um, and the Missouri River going in between, was um, uh, Blackfeet uh, territory. Excuse me. That's not the watershed. Can you show us the watershed is the red. Oh, okay. Right. So it kind of flows into um, the Missouri. Yeah. And um, so I'm going to show you a few pictures of what this landscape looks like. So when people think of places, you know, like Montana, um, you almost always think of mountains, trees, right, snow-capped. Uh, this is really what Montana looks like. Montana is primarily an arid or a semi-arid um, landscape. It uh, is um, primarily what we would consider almost desert-like. Uh, there are uh, hoodoos. There are badlands. Um, it is a very uh, treeless area. When you, when you live in a place like Montana or the Dakotas, one of the things you get used to is everything is yellow for the most part. Things are green for a very short amount of time. So even though a couple of pictures I'm going to show you it looks very green, it doesn't stay that way. It's yellow. Everything's yellow. <laughs> and so you get used to sort of seeing these kind of vast vistas of just yellowness, um, which for people like me, you know, I grew up there, so I love it. I love big open spaces, and um, if I'm in an area where there's too many trees, I think we should cut them down. <laughs> it's too, too claustrophobic. <laughs> so this is an area that's now, uh, there's a place in Montana where they're trying to re, um, uh, reintroduce wild bison. Um, so this is an area that's right near, we're actually right near the Missouri River on this photograph. So because the landscape is that dry and that arid, um, one of the things that um, for the Blackfeet and for any other group that lived on the Northern Great Plains in this area, um, it was necessary always to be near water, to live near water, to know where water sources were. And because of um, them living in such an arid area, um, water also became part of uh, an important part of their religious belief system, and it was something that they revered. Uh, and um, I'll go more into that in a minute. The other thing that um, became important to Blackfeet religious belief system were trees and certain plants. So this is a picture right on the Missouri River. So up and down the Missouri River are um, cottonwood trees. And um, they really only grow along um, the Missouri River or um, some of the tributaries that are um, on the Missouri River. So cottonwood trees play an important part, not only in Blackfeet religion, but um, several of other 
um, native religions that are, again, in the Northern Great Plains. Um, they're important to the Lakota people, they're impo important to the Dakota people. And um, there have actually been, um, in the 19th century, there were a couple of what were called, quote unquote, wars over cottonwood trees. Um, and wars over um, the Americans coming in and chopping down cottonwood trees. Um, because one of the religious beliefs, at least for the, um, the, the Blackfeet and the Lakota as well, is that you don't actually cut down live cottonwood trees, um, except for religious purposes. Um, when they actually used trees, they always used dead and downed wood. Um, so something that had already fallen down. So anyway, so they have um, um, important um, religious significance, and which I'll talk about in a little bit more. So this is a picture of my aunt and two of her granddaughters, and they are out picking um, sweetgrass. And so um, this is really what um, the prairies and the uh, uh, are for us, you know, an area that, again, kind of devoid of trees, uh, uh, usually really tall grass. And uh, back in the old days, um, there used to be a lot of animals out there, not so much anymore. So one of the things I wanted to pass around just and um, is this is sweetgrass, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but really not that much. But I'm just giving you an idea of what they are actually picking out there. So this is actually, it gets a little bit taller than this. Um, and so you, um, it's, you can smell it. Um, it gets picked and dried and used for um, different types of uh, religious activity. Okay. So I, again, I'm, I'm coming um, at my research from a couple of different academic disciplines. One is um, environmental history. Um, so environmental historians are interested in looking at the relationship between humans and nature, right? The relationship between people and their environment. Most environmental historians are look, interested in looking at long histories. So if you read environmental history, they almost always begin at the beginning of time all the way to the present. They like to do these really long studies, right, of looking at places and people and change. I'm, as an environmental historian, I'm not that interested in looking at really long time periods. Um, my studies that I've, the last one I did and the one I'm doing now are really this very short time period. Although I do look at the past, um, and I do talk about the present a little bit, I'm really interested in the time period when the Blackfeet first move onto a reservation. So it's not until the 1880s, after the demise of the bison, um, that the Blackfeet move on to a reservation. And I'm really interested in kind of understanding that first generation of people um, and their change in their ideas and their concepts of nature. So you saw the sort of big area that they had lived in previously. Um, they, the Blackfeet end up moving on to a much, much, in the same area though, much, much smaller reservation. So on the one hand, they're fortunate that they don't get removed. There are a lot of tribes that get moved from one place to a completely different place, and they have to relearn a new ecosystem, a new relationship with nature, a re new relationship with the environment. The Blackfeet don't have to do that. They are in the same space, um, but it's a much, much smaller space. So one of the questions I'm always interested in is how does that moving onto a reservation, living on a much smaller area, not, have, not being able to go to the same places to gather plants or other natural elements, how does that impact their, um, um, their ideas about nature and the environment? And then how does that impact their religious ideas um, and how does it change it? Okay, 
In terms of ethnobotany, um, for, the, for those of you who don't know what ethnobotanists do, ethnobotanists are interested, similar to what eth uh, environmental historians are, in the relationship between people and plants. So ethnobotany is primarily a field um, that's within anthropology. Um, there are probably you know, millions of studies that anthropologists have done around the world um, about the relationship between people and plants. So that's something I'm also interested in. I'm not so much interested in um, kind of the utilitarian sense that a lot of ethnobotanists are interested. A lot of ethnobotanists are interested in, you know, how did um, people use a particular plant, and sometimes for medicine, how was it used in the community. I'm, again, more interested in kind of the belief system. Um, what it, what's the underlying understanding in terms of the relationship with plants based more on religion um, than on kind of utilitarian use. Um, and then the last um, field, which is sort of a newer um, field, is traditional um, ecological knowledge. You know, it's a field that's probably been around for a long time. It now has a kind of a, a phrase that goes with it. But it really is trying to integrate all of those things together of um, understanding um, indigenous knowledge, understanding belief systems, and then also understanding kind of the utilitarian use um, and how uh, native peoples have used, again, their place and their, um, the natural world. So I bring all of those together. Okay, so for my project here, again, coming from an environmental historian kind of uh, question is, I'm really interested in the big, big question, which is really what is this relationship that people have with the natural world and what is the relationship they have um, with plants. But I'm really more interested in viewing it through, again, a religious lens and, um, and, a, and a gendered lens to try and figure out what's going on um, in this particular community. Okay, so here, as Anne already mentioned, I'm working on a project um, that's um, called Plants That Purify. And I previously worked, oops, there we go. Um, I have a book that's coming out in the spring that addresses some of these same um, uh, questions called Invisible Reality, Storytellers, Storytakers, and the Supernatural World of the Blackfeet. And in that particular book, I, and I'll, mention, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the stuff that I talk about in it, not really it. Um, I'm really interested in the idea um, that the Blackfeet believe um, that the purpose of their religious, um, the purpose of their religion is to be able to control and change nature. Um, and so what they think about the, the natural world is how they're, they're able to, um, um, with the help of supernatural allies, how they're able to change the natural world. Um, one of the reasons I was interested in writing that is because in environmental studies and environmental history, um, there's a misnomer that continues to be repeated over and over again is that native people lived in harmony and balance with nature. And I tried to move against that and try to show that there was at least one group that had almost the exact opposite belief of not living in harmony and balance, but wanting to control and change. And that's a really completely different mindset and a really different belief of what your place um, in nature is and your place as a human society. So that's what I was trying to address um, in that. Okay, so, but th for this particular project, I have about 25 questions that I'm attempting to address. <laughs> this is the first one. <laughs> So one is I'm interested, and I'll explain more about this, I'm interested in the religious concept of purity. Um, so I am going at it more from an academic point, you know, a standpoint, um, but really from looking at what do the Blackfeet themselves believe about this idea. Um, I'm uh, interested again in why purification is necessary, which I'll talk more about. These are just all my questions that I'm kind of attempting to address here. 
Um, in terms of gender, why is it that certain women are considered pure, not in need of purification, and why are men always considered impure, in need of purification? So what is it that's going on there? Um, uh, I'm interested in looking at the different methods um, that the Blackfeet have for achieving purification. One of them is um, smudging, which I'll, I'll describe in a little bit. Uh, that's one way of purification, but there are others. And what types of plants did um, uh, the, the Blackfeet um, use uh, for, uh, to help achieve purity? And um, so the second sort of half of what I'm trying to do, so I'm, uh, my, I view my project as kind of two separate things. One is sort of looking at the religion and the gender, and then the other is I'm kind of interested in almost creating like a field guide, like a botanical field guide, where I'm gonna be looking at all the different plants that the Blackfeet use, where do they find them in the landscape, um, what ecosystems do they come out of. Because I know for sure that the majority of plants that the Blackfeet have used in the past, you cannot find them now on the, re on the reservation. I mean, they're almost all off the reservation. So what, again, ask, trying to address that question of what happens um, to people's relationship with nature, how, what happens to um, their religious um, uh, point of view when their landscape shrinks if their religion is based on um, their relationship with the natural world. So those are kind of the big, I have a lot of questions there that I'm trying to do. <laughs> I think I might need three more years project. <laughs> okay, so let me, um, let me start by telling you a little bit about um, Blackfeet religion. Um, So some of the stuff I do, what I'm, that, what I'm going to explain to you right now, I do, I do not have to study. I already sort of learned it as a child. I know it. So I'm not going to be going out trying to look for this information, trying to figure out what all this means. But I'm sharing it with you because you guys are not going to know um, any of this. Okay, so the Blackfeet believe that there are three separate parallel universes or worlds, which um, they call the above world, um, the below world, and the, um, and, uh, the sky world. So the, um, the above world is considered everything that um, is a separate um, universe or world um, where it's basically everybody lives in the sky. There are people that live there. There are supernatural beings that live there. There are monsters that live there. There are animals. There are plants. There's a landscape. Um, it's a completely separate world. Humans can go there. Humans can live there. Um, with the help of supernatural um, allies who will take them there. The same is true with the water world. Um, the water world is also a place that exists underwater. Um, the same um, sorts of folks who live in the sky world also live in the water world. So there are the same supernatural entities, there are plants, there are animals, there's landscape, there's villages, etc. cetera. Um, humans don't live there naturally, humans can live there, um, but again, they need to go there with a supernatural entity. Um, the below world is what we would consider the earth. Um, so um, humans live primarily on earth and again but they can travel to the other um, two worlds. In terms of sort of hierarchy the sky world is considered um, the place that has um, the most uh, supernatural entities that have the most supernatural power. Um, the water world is a really close second, and the below world is um, much further down on the list of supernatural ability. <laughs> but there are, f there are 
in the below world again, the same sorts of things. Supernatural entities, plants, animals that have supernatural ability, monsters, characters, um, etc. So there's this very rich sort of complex um, story that's going on that um, began to get recorded in about the 1880s. So between the 1880s and the 19-teens primarily, more than any other time, this is when anthropologists and ethno-historians and um, just sort of interested outsiders came and started recording some of the stories of the Blackfeet. Nobody ever tried to sort of say, let's start from story one and go all the way to story 1000. So there's not kind of a complete story of everything, but there are sort of these bits and pieces that now if you are a scholar, you can go back and read some of this information if you're not from the community and put it together. Or if you're from the community, a lot of people in the community don't know a lot of this um, sort of um, religion. They're able to, you can, you're able to pull some of that together. So, but the major deities of the Blackfeet religion really are the folks who live in the sky world. So there are four major deities, um, the sun, the moon, morning star, and a human um, named Mistaken Morning Star. Um, and so the three, the first three are all actual um, supernatural deities who are eternal. They've, no one knows when they were born, no one, they'll never die. Um, the fourth person is a human who became immortal and um, now he lives forever. The Blackfeet, um, a lot of the ways that the Blackfeet remember or had remembered their um, history and their stories were primarily through mnemonic devices and through symbolism. And so um, one of the things that I um, added to this slide was this um, uh, piece of beadwork that's called a blanket band, um, which shows the four deities of the Blackfeet. And this is a really kind of common motif that you see in a lot of Blackfeet um, artwork. Um, they put it on clothing, they put it on um, uh, Back when they lived in teepees, they put it on their teepees, um, et cetera. So that was one method of the Blackfeet to sort of remember um, who these deities were. And a lot of times people um, had stories memorized as part of blanket bands. And they are very distinct. If you look at, if you were to probably even go over to the Peabody, they probably have several of these and they're all decorated differently, beaded differently, made differently. Um, and they're made that way so that they are mnemonic devices for the family or the community. Um, this particular motif on the bottom is really common, which is a, co it's a motif of a star um, that you'll see in a lot of, again, beadwork and other things. Um, so in terms of sort of the hierarchy of supernatural entities, um, these deities are important because um, humans wanted to make, create relationships with them. Um, the Blackfeet did not believe, did not worship, you know, so they don't have a sense of worshiping these deities but it was important to create relationships with deities so that those deities would help you as a human um, live a good life here on earth or wherever you ended up. Could have ended up someplace else. So one of the key features about Blackfeet religion um, that um, when you're looking at it that um, people need to understand is just this idea of always creating alliances. The Blackfeet, um, from the time they're born until the day they die, are interested in creating allies with supernatural entities. And so, um, not just one entity, but multiple entities. So the purpose and the, uh, of, of um, Blackfeet religious practice is to um, try and find as many religious allies or supernatural allies as you can, 
to kind of have this long list of them, and as you needed an ally, you'd have one in your, you know, backpack, pretty much, that you could pull out and use. The purpose of allies primarily was so that they would communicate, they would be your mediator or your communicator with the rest of the supernatural world. One of the things that um, um, I wrote about in my previous book is primarily this um, topic of, of, of um, supernatural allies and how the Blackfeet really believe that one of the main uses or purposes of having an ally is being able to change the world that they lived in. So um, easy examples are, you know, the Blackfeet did not believe that, that weather was natural. Um, they believed that weather was completely controlled by supernatural beings and the only way that you as a human could um, impact the weather was if you had a supernatural ally who could then go and talk to another supernatural entity who controlled the weather and they'd change the weather for you. So the Blackfeet never thought that, you know, if it's raining really hard outside, you didn't have to deal with it if you didn't want to. You went and talked to your ally, the ally went and talked to the person making rain, the person making rain would stop and go, okay. And then you'd go live your life. If it was snowing too hard, if the wind is blowing too hard, um, if the sun is shining too hard, if there's any kind of um, part of the natural world that you feel like you are kind of suffering under, you can change it. You do not have to live within um, those conditions. You could also do the opposite, which is um, if you didn't like the guy down the road and you thought um, you wanted to freeze him out, you could make uh, you know, a blizzard happen and you'd freeze your neighbor down there who you didn't like so much. Um, so the whole world of the Blackfeet was around these ideas, and they really did spend um, their days um, thinking about this. Of, um, they spent um, most of their time kind of saturated in this world of the supernatural. Um, they did live in a natural world, but to them the natural world was a very, very small part of this larger world of the supernatural. And um, I would argue that to a certain extent, they really did live more in a supernatural saturated space um, than having to deal with the natural um, at any one point in time. Okay, so um, in this particular project that I'm looking at is I'm looking at purity because the way that the Blackfeet um, and other groups um, um, thought about the way that they could interact with the supernatural is that humans had to become pure first. And pure has a lot of different meanings, so I'll go into that in a little bit. Um, but first of all, the, to interact and to, um, and to talk to um, supernatural allies, um, humans had to be pure. So let me kind of... So there's kind of these multiple layers here where... Um, um, to be able to have some say over the natural world, you had to have connection with the supernatural world, to talk to the supernatural world, you had to be able to purify yourself. Purity was partly not just purification, but sort of transcendence, being able to um, change yourself um, and eventually um, be able to communicate uh, and uh, acquire supernatural allies. So one method of achieving purity was through taking dried plants, not just this one, but there are several others, burning them um, and uh, taking the smoke from that plant, which this is what the Blackfeet call smudging at least. Other tribes do it as well, but people have different meanings. So one thing that the Blackfeet would do is they'd take um, a plant 
they'd burn it, they'd take the smoke, and they would both symbolically wash themselves. So if they were taking the smoke, and you may have, some of you may have seen this in some places and some of you haven't, um, they would literally take the smoke and they would wash their entire body or they would wash an object. So if they were using an object for something, they'd wash the object. So in one sense, that is kind of symbolic in that they are cleansing themselves, right? They're washing themselves, they're cleaning themselves as a human. But one of the things that's also happening to them um, is not just um, cleaning themselves in terms of kind of physical um, clean cleanliness, they're also transforming themselves into a different state so that they are no longer completely human. If you're no longer completely human and you're pure in a different sense, then you can begin to transcend into the supernatural world. Then you can, um, then you can begin to communicate with other um, supernatural entities. So purification and smudging to the Blackfeet was something that was really important and that they would do um, every single day. Um, they would begin their day. Um, usually, um, the Blackfeet almost always prayed at sunrise and sunset because that was when the change of the sun and the moon happened. So they would usually both be out at the same time um, so that they would smudge during those times. And so um, kind of the daily process of, of purification and then sort of feeling that you as a human are now in this kind of transcendent state. Does that make sense? what they were doing? Okay. Okay, so um, as part of this, so that's kind of a, a, a general idea of what people are kind of doing on an individual basis. Um, the Blackfeet also had a lot of different rituals and ceremonies. The vast majority of rituals that they had were considered individual rituals, um, rituals that they had with their own personal allies. So um, say that a person had you know, and like I said, people would try to acquire as many supernatural allies as possible. Someone could easily have two dozen supernatural allies, and each one of your allies has a specific ritual that they want you to perform. So it is possible that one person can have 24 different individual kind of ritual processes that they have to perform at some point in time. Um, and so there was a lot of individual um, ceremonies that occurred. Um, there were also some that were communal. And communal ones were very different than individual ones. In terms of individual ceremonies or individual rituals, only that one person did those things. It was not shared, you didn't do it with, you know, you may have invited other people to help you, but you're not going to um, uh, do that in a communal space or with other, with other folks. Um, the Blackfeet also had several um, communal rituals or communal ceremonies that they conducted. Um, and I've listed a few here. These aren't all of them, but these are the major ones. Um, one is the thunder pipe ceremony, one is a beaver bundle ceremony, um, tobacco planting ceremony, and the Okan. And I'm gonna speak just a little bit about the Okan um, in a moment. So um, what's different about the communal ceremonies is that all of them have a similar kind of motif in the sense that every single ceremony um, that happens that's communal, um, people are reenacting the origin story of how that ceremony came to be. And the basis of that ceremony is the relationship between humans and the supernaturals. And so mostly what all of those ceremonies are doing are they, they're reenactments 
And um, I always try to compare it to like, it's like a passion play, but it's not really a passion play, but they're, they're reenacting the origin. Um, but not only are they reenacting it, they are actually reliving it. So the Blackfeet don't believe that they are actually reenacting something over and over and over again. They think that they are, um, that each time it happens, it's happening for the very first time, that that's the one time that it has happened. And that you who are in the audience are, are experiencing it for the first time. So that it's not just an origin story in the sense of, again, retelling the origin story. You are in the origin story. You're, you, you're the original people. You are the original person that this is happening to. Um, and so um, even though I always use phrases like they're recreating or they're renewing, it, to them, they're, it's not a recreation. It is a creation. So um, with most of these communal ceremonies, they happen once a year, and they happen at specific um, times of the, you know, specific seasons of the year, but most of them are what anthropologists would, would call a renewal, like a renewal of life. Or, um, but to the Blackfeet, they don't think they're renewing anything. They think they're experiencing it for the very first time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they have a different idea of like what is actually going on when it's happening. Okay. So um, as I had mentioned earlier, for the Blackfeet, they don't have a written sacred text, but they really do have a sacred text, um, which is found within um, the different stories of these particular um, ceremonies. Um, everyone in the community back in the old days would have gone to all the communal ceremonies. So they would have known um, the entire story of the entire ceremony, and so they would have, everybody would have had it memorized. Um, the other thing that happens in the community is um, there are mnemonic devices everywhere. Let me just put it that way. They're everywhere. Um, there's symbolism in the way teepees are designed. There's symbolism in people's clothing. There's symbolism in hair. Um, there's symbolism even, for example, in the earrings that I'm wearing, which this is, this is a, um, a symbol of the moon. Um, and you'll see a lot of Native women will wear these. Um, it's almost the way people would wear, wear like a crucifix, right? It's kind of like a, an icon. Um, and it wasn't until um, the turn of the century Again, when this first generation of um, Native people are on the reservation that anthropologists, ethnologists come and they try to write down um, a lot of these different stories. So this is an example from 1910 from a guy named David Duval, who was a Blackfeet man. He worked with um, several different ethnographers. And um, in this particular case, this is um, actually at the Smithsonian at the Natural History Museum. They uh, recorded stories with an old dictaphone and then they would write them down. And, one of the things David Duval did was he would, um, he would, he wrote pages and pages and pages of text in the Blackfeet language, and then he went back and translated. Um, and there are people today who have gone back and um, attempted to translate some of some of um, what Duval has written, because the Blackfeet don't have um, a written language, and the Blackfeet still do not have an official, um, you know, written language. It's difficult to do, even do some of these translations from 100 years ago, because you have to go back and sort of say, what were they saying? Um, anyway, so there is a lot out there now that um, if there was an effort, and I, I know somebody in Canada right now who is trying to um, write and collect all of the stories of this one particular supernatural being, where he's trying to um, figure out what stories went in what order of one supernatural entity, of trying to get the stories um, together to 
not, not necessarily to create a sacred text, but to have it in writing, at least, of kind of this person's story. Um, we'll see what happens. So, um, as I'm running out of time and I have 20 more slides to go, no. <laughs> So one of the, one of the communal um, ceremonies that I was going to talk about very briefly um, is a ceremony that sometimes is translated as the Sundance. It's not a Sundance, um, but it, for the Blackfeet it's called the Okan, which um, translated as his dream. And um, the person who's dreaming is the sun. Um, and so this particular um, ceremony is really divided up for the Blackfeet into two separate parts. So one part, is um, completely um, organized by women. Um, it is conducted by women, and um, it lasts for the few first um, half of the Okan. When the women's section of the Okan is over, um, at least for the Blackfeet, um, then it's done. It's over. Then men have a completely separate part. And in the old days, the Blackfeet didn't even consider that part of the Okan anymore. It was something else had evolved where men got together and sort of did their own thing. Today, when people talk about the Blackfeet Sundance or some other um, uh, Sundances from the Northern Great Plains, they almost always focus on the men's part um, and what men are doing, and they completely do not ever talk about what the women are up to. Um, one of the things I would argue um, as, uh, as a scholar is that, you know, part of the reason that this has happened is that in the last 100 years, again, because of colonization, because of the impact of particularly the Catholic Church in uh, many um, communities in the Northern Great Plains, there has been an effort to change um, the role of women in religion. So in some of these ceremonies where women are the central part of the religious practice or the ritual, um, it has either completely died out or it has changed to um, what people emphasize is men being the center of religion. And for the Blackfeet, for the most part, women were always the center of these communal religious practices because women were the center of the origin story and women were the, one that, were the ones that connected it. Partly, this is because, um, again, in Blackfeet religious belief, um, because women um, were considered, again, um, more pure, meaning more connected to the supernatural world than men, um, they were the ones that became the central part of religious practice. Um, unfortunately, today, again, if you hear about some of these ceremonies, you're only going to hear about men. <laughs> you're not going to hear about what's happening with women. So I'm just going to show you a few pictures. Again, these are from the turn of the last century that were taken um, by a couple of different ethnographers. And um, because, again, this was a, primarily um, the Okan for the Blackfeet was a women's religious ritual, um, women were the ones who put everything up, um, and um, women were the ones who um, were participating in, this is, uh, sorry, this is a really blurry picture, um, but there's a woman right in the middle there. I'll show you a, a drawing of what she's wearing in a second. Um, of, uh, these are the women who are the leaders of this particular ritual. And even though this is the public part, because obviously this is back in the day when you know, a camera was as big as a Volkswagen, I mean, these are ginormous cameras they're, <laughs> they're setting up. They're only taking pictures of what's public, the, the secular or the public face of this particular ceremony. They are reenacting most of this ceremony within um, the teepee that um, you just saw being um, uh, built uh, indoors, um, inside. And um, so this is the outside part of it. Uh, 
This is another photo. So this was actually taken in the 1940s. They held several Ocons during World War II um, because there were a lot of Blackfeet men who were in um, the war, and so the women um, held, um, held an Ocon every single year um, to uh, uh, basically pray for safety, return, safe return of all the men who were at war. Um, in this picture, off in the kind of upper left-hand corner is a picture of my grandmother and aunts and uncles all kind of standing off in the corner there. Um, so this is just a, a drawing that was done again at the turn of the century of what the woman is wearing. And I do not have time to go into this um, unless people ask questions later. Um, she's, so she's wearing something that's made primarily out of feathers and animal fur, but actually what she's wearing is several different plants. So what the Blackfeet did was they made, um, uh, they made uh, um, artifacts, I guess that's the kind of religious artifacts, out of, plant, out, of, out of feathers, but they represented plants. So that's actually, she's wearing a, a bonnet that is of two different plants, um, but not made out of plant. Okay. So this is just a quick picture of men who are, they're bringing in um, some willow um, that's used as part of the ceremony. And um, they build a lodge. This is, again, the women who are um, out um, uh, walking around. They don't really dance. They walk um, every single day. And um, in the end, they build this lodge that in the center, you can't see in this photo, in the center is a cottonwood tree. And they cut down a live cottonwood tree, particularly for this purpose and they cut down a lot of other live plants. And like I said, there's kind of a taboo the Blackfeet have about um, certain plants using anything live about them. You would only take dead and downed wood. Okay, so um, my big question I always ask is like, so what? <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested again in this sort of relationship between uh, what's going on between uh, uh, native people and their environment and in this particular case, one of the things I'm really interested in, and I really, I've just kind of touched on a, a few things today. I'm really interested in this idea of living in a very arid place, um, in an arid environment, how um, water and trees and plants become really important and revered, become part of a religious system. Um, the idea of um, trying to control weather and try to control animals and the world around you, um, how purification plays into this um, religious practice and um, how women ha always end up serving as mediaries between the supernatural world and the natural world. Um, and this is what I'm looking at, this is what I'm um, writing about. So I wanted to end though on um, showing you, this is an image uh, of um, what archaeologists call a medicine wheel. This is one in southern Alberta. And um, it's a place that archeologists have um, found is 4,500 years old. And it, if you were to actually look at it drawn on a piece of paper, it looks very much like an Ocon. It, very, it looks very much like the lodge um, that the um, Blackfeet continue to build today, where it's a big circle um, and they, uh, it has 28 spokes that go into it. Um, which is what an uh, actual Ocon has as well. And um, these sites are primarily studied
by archaeologists, and they're primarily studied um, today by astronomers because there is um, usually some sort of astrological um, uh, device that's been created. And um, unfortunately, um, these types of sites are not studied by religious scholars, and I kind of wish they more, more, more of them were. Um, but one of the things I, I'm, the reason I'm showing you this particular picture is um, we don't know how long the Blackfeet have practiced their religion. We do know that people have lived on the Northern Great Plains for 20,000 years. Um, we know, for example, that there are sites like this that are, you know, over 4,000 years old. And these particular places reflect um, the religion um, that the Blackfeet continued um, to, to uh, practice well into the 20th century. Um, one of the things that I would argue is that even um, if their religious practice were that old, um, 4, 000, over 4,000 years old, that women probably were um, central to that religious point of view. And unfortunately, again, because of the impact of colonization, um, I think that um, we need to sort of go back and, um, and study um, those people in those places again. So one of the things I always encourage um, especially religious scholars, is to really look at native religions again. I know that native religion is not always studied um, in, in uh, religious studies programs, except sometimes when people are looking at, again, the impact of Christianity on native people, um, but as actual religions themselves. And so for students out there, um, consider this as a really viable topic that you could look at, and professors out there, think about adding something about native religion into um, what you're doing, because I think that it is a really important um, um, scholarly endeavor to go back and look at some of um, these different um, communities um, across uh, North America, and not just leave us to the anthropologists. <laughs> so, that's all. Thank you. So we have a microphone for um, questions, which... Um, or comments. Uh, yes, and we have lots of them. Um, I, I, one is, it's, I wonder if... You're really demanding here. Okay, on. Yep, all right. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm looking for, I'm gonna start over here, but I'm Thank you. Um, thank you for bringing the sweet grass also. It okay. smells divine. <laughs> no pun. Uh, <laughs> but uh, do all the wheels have, is the 28 spoke? So is that, a, could that be associated with the woman's cycle? Some people, some, peop, some scholars do argue that. Um, some people also argue uh -huh. it's um, uh, kind of like the days of the month. Well, the, well. Moon, the moon yeah, yeah. and the woman cycle. Being... Some, some people do argue that. And, you know, we, we won't know because it's 5,000 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But that's, that's a guess, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Thank you. I guess I can ask my question. So your description of the Blackfoot uh, attitude toward nature sounds 
almost uh, a little European, being uh, in the business of manipulating nature to some goal, which I assume is, has something to do with human flourishing. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, I think that that might be uh, more universal than we think about the idea of wanting to be in control of the world. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. But yeah. my, my question actually is that uh, given this a, a gentle or activist view of human relationship to nature, how do the Blackfeet today see, uh, understand climate change and react to climate change? and what we should be doing about climate change. Thank you. So I would just begin by saying that the majority of Blackfeet today are, are um, Christian. So the majority are the two, two major religions on the Blackfeet um, reservation are Catholicism, and then the second is um, uh, fundamentalist or uh, evangelical Christianity, mm -hmm. and then the third is um, Blackfeet religion. And there are a lot of, especially, um, there are a lot of Catholics who practice Blackfeet religion and that people don't see it, they see it as two separate things. They don't see it as, as competing in any way. So um, in the last 100 years, because there has been in the impact of Christianity, people have uh, different views about nature and the natural world um, than they would have had 100 years ago. The people who, uh, and I'm changing the, what I'm saying right now. So people who are continue to practice subsistence lifestyles, so people who are still hunting, people who are still gathering plants for medicinal purposes or plants to eat or, um, you know, plants for religious purposes, um, those people who are out on the land a lot, they definitely have noticed climate change. Climate change has been happening for a while and um, in places like Montana, um, the pictures that I showed you at the beginning, Montana is primarily a very dry, arid place. Right now, Montana has gotten wetter and wetter and wetter. Mm. And it's very different. Um, so, so the seasons are getting shorter and longer. So like winter is getting shorter, um, but then spring is getting longer. So we used to have really short springs, and now we have really long springs. So it rains and rains and rains and rains, whereas previously it would snow, it'd rain a little bit, and then it would all melt, right? Um, and so because of that, the plant life is changing dramatically. So for those folks who um, rely, again, on plants for either religious purposes or subsistence purposes have been seeing this for a while. And um, so you have to, um, it's, let me just say, it's different, so you have to travel farther and wider to get um, particular plants, and then some are just not available anymore. Um, so now what people do is you go, you travel further north or you travel further south. So you, you try to go with the ecosystem that you had previously. So our ecosystem is moving north. Does that make sense? <laughs> because of climate change. So there's some things that you have to go further north because what's happening in your particular area um, has shifted what would have been further south. So things are kind of moving like that. Does that make sense? Go ahead. Yeah, well, let's take this question. You thank you very much for the, um, the talk. You had mentioned that certain women uh, did not require purification and also that women uh, were considered more purified than men. Is that because of their menstrual cycle? And um, 
or, or exactly why is that I should just ask. And the second thing is, with what you're describing as um, climate change, and this may sound awful to you, are you trying to um, plant trees or anything that, say, bring in an ecosystem that you favor as opposed to just sort of let it randomly happen? So, so yeah, so historically the ecosystem that was favored was a dry ecosystem. Right. And right now it's a wetter ecosystem. So I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if um, uh, planting um, different plants is gonna change that so much. Um, so the first question, that's true, yeah, yeah. So, and so one of the ongoing issues, I had mentioned this earlier, one of the ongoing issues that um, the Blackfeet and other tribes have is on the Missouri River is cottonwood trees. So cottonwood trees were decimated about 150 years ago by the Americans who were cutting them all down for steamships, for steam travel, um, either steam for, um, for boats or steam for, um, for railroads. And um, so there's been an ongoing process actually of trying to replant um, more cottonwood trees along the Missouri, um, both for the ecosystem, um, but also for religious purposes as well. Um, the other question is, so why are certain women pure uh, is not related to menstrual cycle. It's related more to um, a women, uh, there, there's a list of um, human virtues that are important both for men and women in Blackfeet society. And it has more to do with um, certain um, values, a value system that you have lived as a person. So, and so part of that value system is being truthful. Um, and it's important for, in Blackfeet society, for both men and women to be truthful. And we actually have almost, and this is gonna sound bad on the recording, we almost have, we have like truth tests where we, we um, um, have men prove that they're truthful and women prove that they're truthful. Uh, and so there's kind of a list of particular values that a um, pure woman would have to embody and that would make them pure, um, and that they would then be able to interact with the supernatural. And those are something that, um, not that would sort of just happen, they would have to actually try to acquire that value system and live that value system um, throughout their um, lives. So it's kind, of a, it's kind of a conscious choice, kind of a common conscious human choice to make, but then it, it transcends into the um, supernatural realm as well, so. Can you say a bit more about that? Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, it's so fascinating that, I mean, you, you gave us this tantalizing nugget that men are impure and women are. are pure and there are truth tests and what's up with that? What's up um, with that? <laughs> so, um, so you have to take a step back. So if you look at all of the origin stories of the Blackfeet, so the Blackfeet do not have like the one, you know, like in Christianity, there's not like the one origin story. It starts at the beginning of time. Um, the Blackfeet have multiple, multiple origin stories, which that's what ritual is about. It's about recreating the origin story. So in, in um, almost every origin story where the Blackfeet create a relationship with the supernatural realm, or they create a kinship with the supernatural realm. It's with a female woman, um, human, um, who creates a relationship um, with a supernatural entity. So in most of the ceremonies, 
a human woman marries a supernatural entity. A human woman is um, not necessarily marries, but is sort of brought into um, the, the protection of a supernatural entity. And so then the human woman goes and lives in the supernatural realm for a while. Um, she returns back to Earth, and with her, she brings back all these gifts, right? She brings back um, different um, plants that then the Blackfeet can use. She brings back um, uh, different um, abilities um, herself. And um, so there's multiple stories of these women. So, for example, in the Okan, two of the women that are, their stories are reenacted as a woman named Elk Woman um, and a, another woman named Feather Woman, Soatsaki. They reenact their stories um, of these relationships that they create, but then not only they, do they create a relationship with the supernatural realm, they also create kinship in the sense that um, in a lot of these stories, then the women um, end up having children that are half human and half supernatural, and then those half human, half supernatural um, children come to live on Earth, and then they become part of the Blackfeet, and then they um, continue to have children. And so there's sort of this belief as well that the Blackfeet have um, different, um, you know, your genealogy goes back to the origin, which means you as a human also are probably part supernatural. Does that make sense? <laughs> so there's always a, so when you're again reenacting these stories and you're reenacting an origin, um, you're, you're retelling this, how you have kin relationships, how you have kin folk that are now in the supernatural realm. Um, and so, these women who are the origins, the ones who first go and create um, relationships with the supernatural realm, are seen as um, people that you, as a young girl, if you're growing up, you want to emulate. Um, so you're trying to, again, the, the list of sort of human virtues that you want are already seen in these other women. So you try to emulate them so that you then can become a person that would be able to have a relationship with the supernatural world. Mm -hmm. Did I just make it more convoluted, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, um, the deities you mentioned, uh, sun, moon, and morning star, state and morning star, would be considered in the Western worldview natural phenomena mm -hmm. or entities, right? So um, what I am hearing from you is uh, the act of purification, which is, of course, throughout the Americas. Mm -hmm. uh, I work in the upper Amazon, and it's mm -hmm. the same thing. We use different plants for, for such purposes. So what, what I hear you saying is that there are various actions taken to be able to relate to what you call the supernatural, but uh, that's your label. Mm -hmm. um, but they could just as well be called natural, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So it, is, uh, it seems to me that listening to you, I hear this, uh, this worldview of relating with and uh, being part of, as you just told, uh, with 
a world that the Western tradition has called natural, material, having nothing to do with humans. Uh, but that is not what I'm hearing from you. I'm hearing the word kinship, uh, which is the same in the Amazon mm -hmm. and throughout the Americas, actually. And tobacco is throughout the Americas. So mm -hmm. tobacco is major for smudging mm -hmm. in the Amazon. So what I am um, uh, wondering is that you are not talking about an anthropocentric worldview where uh, the natural world is there for us as a resource. You're rather talking of being in right relationship so that you will not be harmed or uh, you know, bad things come to you personally or your community, uh, your, kin, your human kin group. To call that controlling uh, uh, may not kind of, that's certainly a, world, a word that fits the anthropocentric modern Western, mm -hmm. and it has deep roots, uh, worldview. But I don't think it fits what you're talking about. That's not what I'm hearing you. Um, and the label supernatural, again, is inherited from uh, the theistic, monotheistic traditions mm -hmm. because of the place of nature in those traditions. But when you get to details and when you describe and you give names, I'm not hearing that <laughs> at all. So, so, the, um, so I'm not using any Blackfeet language here. So the Blackfeet do have a prefix that they add to words. Um, and um, when they are delineating, again, what we would say natural versus supernatural, and they would say real versus not real. That's how, they, that's how it gets translated. Um, and so there's a lot of words where they'll add the, the prefix to delineate that something is, so like if they were talking about a particular animal, like a bison, they would say it's a real bison versus it's a not real bison. And that's their distinction. And so, so, um, so instead of me just keep saying real and not real, I just say natural and supernatural. Um, because in their mind, what they are seeing is something that is transcendent. It's not, it's not of the... Um, well, uh, I'm not really hearing uh, that. Uh, right. I'm hearing visible, invisible. Yes. Yep. The visible word. You know, translation is so tricky, as mm -hmm. you know. So very tricky. And with this heavy 100-year colonization and, and Christianization and language shift, you know, it's very hard. But uh, there is an invisible world, and there's mm -hmm. a visible world, and mm -hmm. sometimes they come very close, and you travel back and forth. But uh, from so there, yeah, so, so the so the book that I have coming out right now is called Invisible Reality, and that's based on a quote from a Catholic priest who um, was trying to figure out. Um, he he actually ended up writing um, paper um, trying to describe Blackfeet worldview. Um, for other priests, so that the other priests could understand it. And so um, in there, he has a long description of how the Blackfeet believe in an, in an invisible reality, and that their invisible reality is more real than we would describe the real world. And so that he's trying to explain this idea of, anyway, that's how that ended up to be the title of 
of, um, mm -hmm. of, of that. But no, they definitely, um, it has been translated, those two words, as visible and invisible, but really it's real and not real. Um, but, I mean, in terms of translation. Um, but um, what I was going to say, so, so your other comment earlier, I, the, I, would, I would argue that the Blackfeet never see the world as um, kind of half empty in the sense that they're not worrying about being cursed ever. They're not worried about, um, I need to do this so that the gods will not strike me down. It's the exact opposite of, I want to have good relationships with everybody because I want to have good relationships, not because I want to have a good relationship so I don't, so I don't, you know, that lightning doesn't strike me dead. Does that make sense? So it's not, yes. they, never, they never have that kind of the negative um, view yes. of why they're creating the relationship. Uh, right. Yeah. right. But I know that, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. yeah, I'm just uh, wondering whether, you know, control and supernatural are good words because they I, do, I, they do uh, you know, they have a huge baggage. They have, uh, you know what, they do have huge baggage. Un un uh, unfortunately, the way the... Um, and again, back looking at Blackfeet language, they actually are saying control and change, that they want to be able to control the world around them. And to them, again, that's not, it's not a, um, they're not trying to become wealthy, they're not trying to, it, it has more to do with being able to um, um, live on the Northern Great Plains as a place. Yeah. But, they so then, but, but those are the words, they, that's the words they use. But, you know, the uh, gold mining that destroyed the, that's controlling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's <laughs> anthropocentric. That's not Blackfoot. Right. Rosalind, are you trying okay. to push back against a misinterpretation when you're using those terms? Um, well, the, the major misinterpretation I'm trying to push back against um, when using those terms is just the idea of that all native people live in harmony and balance. The Blackfeet have, I'm not sure if the word harmony or balance ever shows up even as a translated word in sort of any of the things that they're doing. Um, but being able to change things definitely is, that they wanna change the behavior of something. They wanna change the identity of something. They wanna change something from being human to not human. They wanna change an animal from being an animal to something else. So changing um, the way people physically are or other entities are is definitely part of the words that they're using. And, um, and being able to control, I mean, they do try to control other humans. They do try to control animal behavior. They do, and, and that, that is the kind of language they're using. Um, so I don't think, um, they're definitely not doing it in sort of the American sense, of the way we think of, of, of control. Um, uh, I think that with some of this though, like even with the word purity, you know, that's, I'm, when I'm writing this, I'm definitely gonna have to write that this is a Blackfeet idea, concept of purity, not other um, kind of religious ideas of purity that we, are, we know of, or even American ideas of, of, of women being pure. Um, and one of the big ones has to do with uh, menstruation, you know, people, um, I know that other Native American religions, that's an important part of the way they think about women, and Blackfeet, it's not so much. So it's just different. So go ahead. Sorry. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. 
I'm hoping you can talk a little bit more about Sweetgrass and how it was used and what it helped access for the people. <laughs> okay, so um, <laughs> I was looking at the time. So, what, so um, one of the things I didn't add to my slideshow, but I'll show, because uh, I added at the, at the end, just in case somebody asked something about plants. So I'm gonna show you really quickly the list of plants that I've identified so far that the Blackfeet used for um, purification. Um, so this is um, um, one list. It also includes um, fungi and lichen. And um, so these are, it, these are the plants that are identified and then what parts of the plants are used. Um, and then there's also um, bison fur is also used as a method of purification. Um, here's the second part of the list. So that's the very top one, that's sweetgrass, um, which is a grass. Um, some are also, um, you know, berries, seeds, et cetera. A lot of different types of fungus were used for purification. And um, then this is the last um, part of the list. Um, they also collected uh, one particular type of rock, um, which they ground up and they used for smudging. And then the other methods of purification are the obvious ones that people around the world use, like water and steam. Um, from water, et cetera. Okay, so um, sweetgrass is, oh, there it is. Um, sweetgrass is a uh, grass <laughs> um, that grows primarily in uh, uh, wet areas. So you do need to need, you need to be near water. Um, it's, it doesn't grow out in the dry, arid plains. Um, it is something that, um, again, almost every single object that the Blackfeet use has some sort of supernatural you know, or um, origin to it. And so most of the plants that the Blackfeet used have a story as to where they came from and why that particular plant is being used. Um, a lot of times it's just as simple as saying, you know, the moon says use this. And you're like, okay, gonna use it. Um, and there's, it's not any, you know, kind of deeper than that. Um, sweetgrass is something that is used for purification on a, can be used on a daily basis, but it's used primarily for um, praying in, well, how can I say this? Praying in a positive way. It's not something that you, you would not use sweetgrass if there was um, something negative happening, um, if there was death involved, uh, if there was a supernatural entity, because not all supernatural entities are good, right? A lot of them are bad. Um, if there was a supernatural entity that was not good. Um, so sweetgrass is seen as something that is used primarily um, for a happy time, a good day, um, that you're communicating with the supernatural, your supernatural ally in a positive sense. Um, and so that's when it would be used. If there was something negative going on, you would not use sweetgrass because that's, that's not its purpose. So there's other plants that are used for completely different ways, but this is more, I, I don't know, just, it's more for sort of positive, good days, so. Anyway. Well, I think it's 1.30, so if folks have. Let's take uh, one oh, last say, Okay. <laughs> the cyanide leaching, and what is its effect, not only on the people, but on the plant life that surrounds um, where it was affected. Okay, so um, cyanide leach gold mining is, what they used to do is they would dig up um, giant, um, it, it, they would do what's called open pit mining. So they would basically just take a bunch of dirt, 
Um, they would make a giant pond. In the old days, they wouldn't even cover it. Now they put a piece of plastic on it. Um, they dump all the dirt in there. They throw um, water mixed with cyanide and a few other um, toxic mineral uh, chemicals. And then it sits there for a very long time. And basically, over um, time, the gold separates from everything else. And then they basically skim the gold off the top. Okay. That's, what, that's the process. But then what happens is then you have all of this um, um, after um, product of uh, both dirt, contaminated dirt now, but also contaminated water that usually has cyanide, um, it has mercury, it has a few other toxic chemicals, and it pretty much has no place to go. So what unfortunately happened in the story that I told you at the very beginning is then that cyanide leached into um, the, the water system because they were at the top of the mountain, and so it got into, um, into the watershed. And then it um, came down um, into their uh, creeks and their rivers, and it's there permanently. Um, and it just po it poisons everything. So if you've ever seen, it almost looks like a moonscape um, when you look at those places. It kills everything um, in its path, and you can't drink the water. Um, and it, it looks, I, I don't have pictures of it right now, but it looks, um, you know, just kind of, it looks like a moonscape. But everything's kind of yellow and orange, and, um, uh, and it'll be that way for pretty much ever. That's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, she just asked if it's like fracking. It is kind of like fracking, yeah, where you just have the water, um, it's not even water anymore, but the liquid byproduct that has no place to go. Well, thank you so much for um, bringing this so up to date and um, uh, for letting us come into this work in progress. And we can't wait to find out what all the plants are that um, are going to become part of this, this study. And uh, thank you all for joining us. And please join me in thanking Rosalind.